All right, welcome back for another episode of Talk to Tatiana. And today we have Randy Z. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your last name just yet, but you will uh, enlighten us on how it's pronounced. And uh, Randy, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Tatiana. Awesome. So how do you pronounce your last name? I should have asked you before I hit record. Oh, no, I that's okay. <laughs> I, it, it gets pronounced a lot of different ways, but it's really <laughs> just Ziegenfuss. It's a nice German name. Yep, that's what I thought. Okay, good. Because I did study German in high school um, for a little bit. Don't remember any of it anymore. Excellent. <laughs> All right, Randy. So I know that we are doing the uh, business coaching um, and advisory and kind of support of your entrepreneurial journey. But before we get to that, please share with me and the audience kind of where you've started your career and Go in as much detail as you'd like. I personally like the detail, and this episode is airing on April Fool's Day, so I think if you you are pretty great with inserting humor into it, so feel free to do that. <laughs> so this is all an April Fool's joke, but no, it's really not. Um, so let me give you a little bit of background on my sort of career trajectory. So um, as a student probably around middle school, junior high, I guess that's what it was back when, back in the dark ages in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and in high school, I was obviously, um, once you hear about my career, uh, somebody who was interested in the arts. So I was a trumpet player and, you know, I was all about um, taking the music stuff and being in the band and whatnot. And so when I got to high school, I decided that was, that was going to be the fit for me. So I was going to become a music teacher. I was inspired by uh, the teachers that I had and had been studying trumpet locally uh, at a college and decided I would go to that particular college and uh, get my music degree and become a band director. But it didn't quite work out that way. Um, I had a really bad student teaching, they call it, practice teaching experience at the high school level in band. And I was just like, I don't ever want to do this because I'll probably go deaf. Um, <laughs> so I ended up taking a job at a middle school teaching choral music and musical theater and general music. And I loved it. Um, so I continued to play a little bit um, then, but I really got interested in like conducting and the sort of organizational aspects of taking kids on trips and things like that. I live just a little bit, uh, 90 minutes outside of New York city. So like going into the city with kids on field trips and things like that was always like a really great experience. So I did that for 12 years. And during that time, like the last five years of that, of that time period is when technology started to become infused in education. So that was like, probably mid nineties maybe. And uh, somehow there were these computers that landed in my classroom and I was just like, Oh, interesting. What could I do with these? So I learned how to like do MIDI and like create music. And it really transformed my classroom. It was like a three ring circus. <laughs> it was like kids were creating music. Kids were playing music. There were, um, you know, working in groups and just being really creative. And uh, that helped me realize like kids can really love learning. It's just a matter of whether we create learning environments that 
actually fit with the way they learn and what they want to learn. Uh, and then after I got pretty good at the tech stuff, um, I moved out of the music classroom after 12 years. And then I became an instructional technology specialist, which basically in, in layman's terms meant I was working with teachers to learn how to use technology. They were getting technology in their classrooms as well. And it was about how do we use this stuff? How do we help um, kids to use it to learn better? I did that for seven years. And then I went back to college and got a master's degree in um, technology leadership <laughs> of all things. So that was probably <laughs> like the early 2000s. And then I left that district after 19 years. Um, and I was still doing um, some music and some theater. Um, but then that sort of slowed down because I got into administration. So I moved to a neighboring district. I was the technology director for seven years and then um, became an assistant superintendent and then was the superintendent for about seven years. And then I finished my career. I retired after 34 years and I retired in January of 2021. So it's cool. been about a year. And that brings me to sort of the new phase of my life. So over that period of time, um, particularly in leadership positions, had uh, done some work in terms of really changing up and transforming how we do school and how we think about school and education. And um, a lot of that really stems back to being in the music classroom and, and being in this sort of non-tested, special kind of area where kids you know, seem to really resonate with the learning experiences in a different way than they did in maybe their core subjects. And so as a leader, I would say my mission, my vision was how do we transform the education system so that those kinds of experiences and that feeling that, that learners had could happen throughout all of their learning experiences and not just in like the fun stuff like art and music. <laughs> and so, um, after I retired, I reflected because it was actually during the dark days of COVID when everything was shut down and nobody was seeing each other. And I was sort of after going 500 miles an hour as a superintendent, now going zero <laughs> and trying to figure out how I was going to fill the time and space was like, hmm, let's reflect on like, what did I actually do? And how can I make some sense out of that? And is there any value there in fueling the next phase of life and what I had to contribute. So um, I did have the opportunity to sort of engage with a couple other people and some of the ideas and um, came up with this idea um, that launched earlier this week uh, called The Human School. And uh, it's at thehuman.school. And um, it is basically um, an idea based on the reflections upon my career and what I did um, and what I think that I worked with other people to accomplish during that period of time. So the idea of the human school is that um, we all have, we are all, as human beings, we are all born with gifts and the purpose of education is to create the space and the opportunities for people to 
discover what those gifts are and to release them to the benefit of the world and themselves. And um, through my reflection, came to the conclusion that a lot of the people that are in the education space actually feel trapped and disempowered. Um, the values that they hold, the reason why they got into the profession are not in alignment with the way that the system is currently set up, which which was set up like 200 years ago based on the social systems that existed at the time, primarily the industrial model. And so through my reflection, I created a framework, um, which I call the human school compass, which is sort of the how to transforming schools to align more with the values that we have in our hearts as educators. And the human school compass consists of four compass points. They are be an objector, be an inventor, be a curator, and be a storyteller. And through further reflection, I realized that for change to come about in education, we have to change the way that we think and how we act in each of those compass points. And so each of the compass points has several what I call mind shifts, ways that we need to think differently in order to transform the system. So not only do we need to become objectors, and this is an example, but we need to shift our minds from thinking about being compliant subjects in the system, which is the way most educators think about their role now, to being actively curious about what are the parts of the system that don't resonate with us that we would like to change. And that's where you start to, once you have that mind shift, that's when you start to become, you start to take on the role of an objector and you find things awesome. within the system that you want to change, that don't vibe with you, that don't resonate. Um, but you have to become aware of that and, a lot of educators, because we have become so good at being compliant, aren't really good at being curious. And if we want to transform the system, we need to be curious about what are those things that don't resonate with us anymore. And so the, the human school compass takes you through this cycle of becoming aware of what doesn't resonate with you and then inventing solutions and then testing out those solutions and gathering some evidence, some human-centered evidence, because the human school is all about transforming the system to be more human, to um, be designed to draw out those uniquely human things about each of the people that work and live in the system. Um, which the, the standardized system just doesn't do now. It crushes us. It makes us feel trapped. So um, designing this framework and this idea, now sort of let me give you a, a sense of the vision for this, of like where I see it going. So created this framework, pushed it out into the world. And really when I, what I want to do over at least the next year is this is version 1.0. This is me basically thinking for a year and bouncing the ideas off of some close colleagues and then creating some videos and some podcasts and some other content 
And what I want to do over the next year is iterate this by having conversations with folks that are interested in this change and uh, elevating the framework, the ideas to version 2.0 and then really start to see how this can gain some traction with practitioners, educators on the ground, teachers and leaders who are actually in schools, because I believe that's where the change is actually going to happen. It's not going to happen in the traditional way that we think about policy and education and change. It's not going to happen from the state. It's not even going to happen from the district central office. It's going to happen on the ground with teachers and leaders. And this framework is designed to support them in aligning a system to their core values. And so I'm curious, I'm more the guy of ideas, and I'm (laughs) curious to see how this might develop over the next year in terms of uh, a side business or something like that. So I don't know, does that give you enough background, (laughs) Tatiana? Absolutely, while you were talking, I actually peeked at your website. Um, and see that you have some really cool stuff going on. The mind, sh- mind, sh- mind shift cards re- are really um, cool. Um, I might actually get some for myself. Um, talk a little bit here. about. Huh? Look at them. They're beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Um, so talk a little bit about, and I know I've actually taken some notes and I think that I usually, when I interview um, someone on a podcast, I usually come up with the title for the episode as we as we talk or as the person talks and we have a conversation and so i've already come up with the title for this podcast um do you want to hear it yes definitely (laughs) educators are good at being compliant and not so good at being curious how about that (laughs) (laughs) sounds good it's it's true yeah and i think that it's it's true as well um and you know i've certainly i certainly have experience with on the, on the receiving side of the education with my kids. And, you know, uh, I grew up, obviously, but I grew up in a different country. So I have a different experience on the receiving side of education as well. Um, so I, it's, it's very interesting to, for me to see where you're going to take it. And um, I like your, um, your framework and, um, uh, and your cards and your idea. What I'm curious about is, who is this for? For example, who would benefit from, let's say, the cards that you sell? Or who would benefit from your podcast? Who's the target audience that you think will will buy your offer? Yeah, so that's a great question. And from what I've thought about so far, I'm looking at practitioners. Um, people who are in the field that have a practice, and that would be teachers and leaders as well. And by leaders, I mean like principals that are in buildings and even central office people. I mean, uh, education is really somewhat hierarchical, even though I don't particularly like that. Um, Central office leaders do have a responsibility for shaping vision And part of that vision can be transforming the system and making changes. Principals and um, teachers and even students. I mean, eventually I could see like, how do we um, 
how do we build the leadership of students into bringing about this transformation? They're a huge part of the system. They're oftentimes a voice that's not heard. And in fact, one of my mind shifts is moving from thinking of leadership as a title to thinking of leadership as being in anyone. As long as you decide to take action that brings about change, you are a leader. And you can be a student, you can be a teacher, you can be a principal, you can be a superintendent. It doesn't matter what your title is. Leadership is based on what you do and whether you're bringing about change with what you do. So I think the audience, going back to your question, at least at this first swipe is really teachers and leaders, but leaders like with a formal title, like central office people or principals. That's cool. Um, I took I took some notes as you were speaking. Thanks so much. I think it's really powerful. And I certainly, you know, it's only been a year since you've retired. And, and honestly, it's very cool to see how much thought went into developing this idea. I really like it. I took some some really cool notes that listeners and people who are watching will be able to see um, um, below the video if you're on in YouTube or in the show notes um, for the podcast. Great. So how do you see yourself and your company, this company, supporting those teachers, leaders, and students with your offer? What would that relationship look like? So I think initially, so this is where I don't have the, a great business sense. I'm, I'm, I seem to be driven more by, and I like this, more by the mission of doing something good and something that contributes to the public good, so to speak, and contributes to the field of public education that I was in. And so really initially, as you see on the site, that the focus is really on the ideas. I'm not trying to monetize much of anything. And the only reason why the cards cost something is because they had to be printed. <laughs> so the idea is the the desire at this point is really to get the ideas out there and to see what kind of traction they get. And I fully realize this is a pretty niche market um, that there are a lot of frictions that people in the space will experience with these ideas. Um, some of those frictions being education is not a space that changes very easily. So there's a lot of inertia. Um, it, it, education is a system that's tightly intertwined with other systems. So there's a lot of energy that's required to change even a small part of the system. And right now, educators are feeling stressed and over, overburdened and whatnot. So I realize that that's a friction as well. Um, so hopefully that gives you some idea of, you know, where what I'm what I'm offering right now. I see as ideas um, and want to get some more practitioner examples on there so that people see that. Um, there is something this that this can be brought to life. And if in the podcasts, so the podcasts are more like narrative podcasts. So they're, they're relatively highly produced. So there's narrative that I wrote, but then there's also um, stories and 
sort of firsthand accounts from people in the space that are doing the work and represent a particular one of those compass points. So the podcasts are actually interesting from the perspective of seeing or listening, I should say, to real world examples of these ideas in play. Okay. Um, so, okay. So let me uh, reflect this back to you and then maybe we can take it to the next level. So right now you have a framework and a number of ideas on how to really transform the education from within. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm curious about is I understand the cards, you know, being a product that's being sold. I understand the podcast of being the place of ideas and information and um, helpful support, support to the educators um, that are in the trenches, so to speak. Uh, what is the next step? And would you be open to, say, running a something that's potentially beta, maybe uh, probably unpaid to get the feedback on what to do next, how to incorporate that. Um, because I believe in, and I've sort of, um, um, has seen that to be true. I believe that, um, if, unless we formulate some sort of an offer, it's, it really, stays in the idea phase for, for a long time. And so, um, and at the same time, I also know being a, a writer and, um, an, an author and a speaker that the creative process takes time. Um, but I think that creating some sort of a structure where, you know, okay, for the next six months, I want to test it out and I want to work with a very small group of beta people who will not pay anything, but they will get support. Um, from me and feed and will provide feedback in return for that. What would you say to that? So have thought about like coaching. That was one thing. Uh, and also how to turn this into like, let's say somebody says, could you come to my school or could you come to my conference and do a three hour session or do a full day session? So I think down the line, the idea of structuring um, some professional learning, as we call it in education, might be called training as in sort of the outside world. Um, so I think there's some possibilities there. Um, definitely want to do some speaking. Um, I think the ideas are, are interesting and interesting to potential like conference goers or conferences. So would like to have that as um, something that uh, feeds the ideas. Uh, so, co so coaching, speaking, um, potentially like an online course, and definitely, definitely looking at a uh, book has been on the, on the, the, the radar as well as the year goes on. Um, and as we start to iterate these ideas. Awesome. Um, terrific. And I just had one thought. Oh, I wanted to ask you something. So I have a client actually who, um, who serves the unhappy or I guess burnt out teachers as an audience. Um, she has a course and a little membership where 
she helps teachers who are burnt out and don't want to stay in education get out of it, basically, and find another job. So what I'm curious about is she always talks about the fact that teachers and educators are really um, professionals with very limited limited means. And so my question is, um, and that there are a lot of, I guess, people out there trying to take advantage of them, of them being burnt out, you know, by offering them high, high ticket um, things and and, um, and I guess courses, offers, whatever, whatever it is. So I'm curious to know, um, have you thought about that side of the, your business plan and model um, at all in terms of um, the offers to support them and kind of the, I guess, appeal to them for investing in your products that will come out in the future? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a friction point that has been there along the way. And that is that the, the biggest audience, teachers, don't really have the resources um, necessarily. So I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but initially putting the ideas out there, like just trying to build a community and not charging, um, that was that decision was made largely because of the audience is not like, you know, high paying business people. Correct. So yeah. um, I don't, I don't know what, what the answer to that is going forward. Um, but I, I think that probably anybody in the education space, particularly K-12 um, experiences that, that, that that's definitely a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's great that you've thought about it because that's one of um, the things that it was surprising to me um, to understand. You know, when we create courses and create programs, I think that at least I hope that, okay, if the person sees a value, they'll be willing to pay for whatever it is that I'm selling. But then I think that with the Certain audiences, like teachers, is uh, is one of them. It's a very thin line in terms of investing in yourself, but also not having physically having the funds to invest in something like that. Absolutely, and I think that also there are teachers who are who don't want to get out of the profession. A lot of them, um, obviously, because a lot of uh, quite a few teachers are getting out of the profession, but um, teachers who really love what they do. I think they could greatly benefit from what you're offering, the support and the podcast and the ideas on how to make their classroom um, more fun and actually change the lives of kids because that's what education is really about and that's what teachers are really about is mm-hmm. changing the life of, of children, ch- changing their future and affecting their future. Um, that's awesome. And so I saw that you've uh, formed an LLC. Um, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> that was based on a recommendation. I don't, <laughs> I need, need to learn a little bit more how to deal with that. And uh, it just, I just did it like in the last month or so. Um, so I have, I have the, all the paperwork's done for that. Um, I just need to, I'm not obviously bringing in much revenue at the moment, uh, if any. Uh, and just through the sale of the cards. But other than that, um, I definitely need to 
learn more about how do I exist in that new world, which is definitely not uh, the same as K-12, what I'm used to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, it's not, and it's a different, slightly different world, but I think it's much more dynamic and fun um, than a traditional job with a salary and responsibilities and so on. You get to run your own life and that's what's what's awesome about it. And so what I want, I'll come back to the LLC question um, or point rather, but what I wanted was, I was what I was curious about is, okay, I actually forgot the, the, the left, um, just uh, lost my train of thought. I'll come back to, to that. I'll remember. But let me ask you then uh, on the LLC, or rather tell your coach or advise you on that. Just keep in mind that as soon as you hit $50,000 in, or um, some practitioners say 100000 some practitioners say fifty in net income for the year, you should consider converting that LLC into potentially an S-corp. I usually don't look at one entity um, as a go-to as most practitioners do. Oh, you should be an S-corp, or you should be on a single member LLC, or you should be sole proprietorship, or you should be a C-corp. It's much more complicated than that. So as your business grows, there's a lot of considerations and potentially um, really signs for sometimes a two to three entity structures. And so you, that's, that's not something you have to worry about right now. And I think that when you're just starting out and you're starting from scratch, an LLC is definitely the right choice. Uh, but as soon as you, let's say you're in June of 2022, you hit 50,000 um, or or more in net profit from your business, that's when it's time to reach out to somebody and say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm at 50,000. I think it's time to convert me uh, this LLC into an S-Corp. It's a really simple conversion if you know what you're doing. Um, nothing changes, no bank account change, no tax ID change, nothing it's a mere tax conversion, and that's the, the really great power of it. So just wanted to throw that at you to give you an idea for that. Excellent. I'll keep that on my radar as I learn more and progress and grow in this. Terrific. Terrific. And uh, business ownership in general, um, you have to treat it as a business. That's where accountants usually fail. Um, and I certainly was a part of a part of that a group of people for a long for a long period of time I think I still am sort of dipping into it and I'll kind of give you an example hopefully it will help you understand what how you treat this business that you've created and that you are going to grow um, so for most accountants love what they do they love crunching numbers and doing tax returns and and, and things like that most also good accountants aren't really great people, people, people. The reason being that the per, like almost the perfect um, personality for accountants is an introvert who's sitting in their office, not wanting to talk to other people. And so, <laughs> and that's certainly someone I've been. Um, but in 2018, uh, something, an award basically pushed me to change, to mind shift, um, as you call it. And uh, it was really transformational. And I remember talking to a client of mine and he said, and I said, I didn't treat my business as a business just until recently. And he was very surprised. It's like, you are the business specialist. 
<laughs> you are the person who advises other people on business. And so um, it was really a huge mind shift for me. Um, and since then, I've been back and forth in terms of what that mean, what it means to have a business. Hmm. To have a business means that you have to have a unique offer, you have to have demand for that offer, and you have to have systems. And where those three kind of intersect, and this is something that comes from Mike Michalowicz's uh, book, The Pumpkin Plan, The Sweet Spot. If you have demand and unique offer, but no systems, you will sell time for money. Um, oh, and I remember my point now, and I'll uh, it actually le leading into it. Um, if you have systems and demand, but not unique offer, it will be downward price pressure all the time. Um, and so that the combination of the three is really important for a business. And with accounting businesses, slightly, um, it's a slightly different scenario. And I've realized that it's really hard to have systems and provide concierge top quality to clients. So something for you to think about. But the reason I'm mentioning all of this is, and where I would like you to elaborate a little bit on, is your non-negotiables. Um, get clear on those early, and you can even um, talk a little bit about them now if you'd like, and I'll give you an example. And it will be different for you because, first of all, you're a guy, and also uh, you don't have small children, right? I'm assuming. No small children. <laughs> no <Good>. children. <laughs> okay. So it will be different for everyone. And for me, this was the biggest thing because that's why my business was growing. I was accepting new clients and everyone who came through the door, referral, I was trying to try and make it work for them, regardless of how much they paid. And so, um, and which is not a bad thing, but at the same time, what happened was usually I would, summers are not busy for accountants. We do still have some work, but usually what I would do is I would, be able to manage some of the bookkeeping work uh, in the evening if I needed to. But during the day, like we didn't send kids to like a day camp or anything like that for while they were very little. And we would just really explore and do, you know, like day trips and stuff like that. And then one of the summers, a client would call and say, when can you meet? And I would look at my calendar and it's free and it's like open. And I'd be like, oh, okay, whatever works for you. So I ended up having weeks where Every day I had a call somewhere in the middle of the day. So I couldn't take kids on a day trip. Um, I couldn't really connect with them the way I wanted. And that summer I felt like I didn't get the connection that we normally get over, over that um, period with kids. Um, and so for me, that was number one, non-negotiable, where no work on weekends, no work in the evenings and summers, work two days a week on certain days of the week. That's it. And so what I'm curious to know is what would those non-negotiables look for, look like for you? Hmm. That's interesting. Cause I haven't, I haven't honestly thought about that. And I think that I've been so in the ideas that I haven't thought about what those non-negotiables are. So I suppose that that's something to think about. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Well, you can always let me know if you'd like uh, later <laughs> when we meet. So um, to reflect what you've mentioned back to you, right now you're at the sharing the idea stage, the podcast, the speaking, the workshops, the trainings. 
did I get it kind of right? Awesome. Um, and I think that's a great start. And now um, hopefully I will help you a little bit in terms of the business side of things. And so do you have any specific questions for me or can I offer you a couple of um, ideas? So just thinking about the non-negotiable question, I think I think one of the things that I don't want to do is to get back to the crazy schedule I had previously, where it was like being a superintendent, it's a 24 seven job. Like literally you'd get calls in the middle of the night to go manage a situation, something that happened that had to be addressed. And, and I think that um, I don't necessarily want to work full time and maybe it's not even worth framing it as full time or part time. I want to do, I want to do work that resonates with me. And if it means that there's a week of 60 hours and it resonates, that's cool. (laughs) And if it means that there's a week of zero hours and that resonates because I'm off doing something else, that's cool too. I have that flexibility. And so I think probably one of the non-negotiables is I, I want to do work that is a fit. And if it's not a fit, I don't want to do it. And I, right. I have the luxury at this point to sort of draw that line. Um, I and it. I think in terms of questions for you, the, definitely the business side, um, being in public education, it's not run like a business because I can't raise money. <laughs> I, I basically have a limited fixed amount of money that comes from state government and comes from local taxes. So basically the business side of things is how do I make decisions around allocating those funds? So I wouldn't say that my business savvy is exactly a 10 of 10. Um, And so my question to you is, what could I do in the near, mid or long-term futures that would help me elevate my sort of business savvy score? I think the, you are sort of already there just based on what I hear and see f- from you, but not there in a sense that um, I think you're a little bit ahead than most people when they just start a business. Um, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about the um, business side of things, right? And so um, I have a framework of the whole brain approach where I talk about the fact that businesses do start with the right part of the brain, the creative side, but then they absolutely need the support of the left side of the brain where um, you have to know enough to be dangerous sort of in numbers and money and taxes, how to manage all of that. Because, um, you know, I've worked with small businesses for, I think it's going to be like 18 years this year, maybe. 17? 17, I think it will be. I'm adding years every time I talk to somebody. Um, (laughs) And so um, there's definitely understanding that you can't fake it till you make it when it comes to the money numbers and taxes side. I think you're already there because that's what a lot of people struggle with. Oh, I'm just starting out. I'm not making any money. I shouldn't be reporting taxes or I shouldn't worry about managing the business. Or I am investing on all these programs. All of those decisions have to be supported by numbers. And so 
Um, similarly, I believe that you have to um, analyze, launch, analyze, launch, analyze. And even if it's a mini launch, like you're getting a group of five educators together to meet maybe 12 times over the next three months. Um, and your offer to them is I will support you in creating the class, the change within, within your classroom. Um, and in, in return, you will provide feedback and it will be a work in progress. Um, and setting specific deadlines on that, um, not deadlines that are firm because what I've, what I've learned in my, um, my own business, um, journey is that sometimes you have to prioritize something else. And for me, let's say now in um, in this time of year, it's my clients that have to get their taxes done. So similarly, sometimes you have the plan set out, but then let's say less people sign up that you've wanted. So maybe you'll push it back a little bit to allow yourself to get the people that you want in the group and really come to that from a numbers perspective. Okay, so I need at least 16 or I'm making, making stuff up. I need at least 16 people to get the feedback I need so that I can launch it for profit next time. And so that's the that's how you will learn to become a business owner. And remember, the goal of the business is to make money for you as a business owner, right? Um, so you always have to run that analysis of not cost, cost benefits. Sometimes you have to get out of the spreadsheet um, as well and be the visionary. Uh, but I think that just um, kind of moving from understanding that it, this part of the business is important, the money numbers and tax part, and moving to the next stage where you actually make that happen. So you pay attention to your numbers, you look at your reports, you have bookkeeping that's set up because bookkeeping is really the cornerstone, the, the foundation of every business. Well done bookkeeping will provide you information to build your business up and to later scale it. And so that's that's kind of how you can get to to ten. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the the feedback and the insights, Tatiana. Absolutely, Randy. As we kind of um, uh, wrap up here, I would always like to ask uh, my guests um, this one question: If you could talk to your younger self, what would you say to that person, to that boy? Um. Just keep doing good work in the moment and the rest will come. Awesome. I love that. All right. And Randy, we'll, we'll post your um, connection links in the show notes or below this video if you're watching it on YouTube. Thanks so much for being a great guest and sharing your business and your insights and your dreams. That's really That's really awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tatiana. Appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next week for another episode of Talk to Tatiana.